I'm uh, sure that you've realized that advertising has become a pervasive presence in our lives. Just about everywhere you look, you will find ads for different companies, different products, different services. So when you're scrolling on social media, when you're watching TV, when you're walking down the street, when you're driving on the highway, even my Gmail account now has ads popping into it. I don't know if anyone else has that. (laughs) Ads are everywhere. Now, it's not all bad. I want to share with you a a few of my uh, favorite ads. You see, some of them are really quite clever. Look at the screen. This is an ad for a job for jobs in the construction industry. It says, hey, chat GPT, finish this building. See, there are some things that AI can't do. The next one is an ad for a regular old-fashioned watch. It says there, I'm not sure if you can read it, it says, know the time without seeing you have 1,249 unanswered emails. The next one is an ad for Bose noise-canceling headphones. Perhaps my favorite is this ad for dentistry. It says, why is dentistry important? Because even though he's missing an eyebrow, the first thing you notice is his smile. (laughs) If you haven't been to the dentist for a while, there's your reminder. Now, the reason I bring this up, the reason I'm talking about advertising It's because when Jesus came from heaven to earth, he came with an incredible message. He came with an amazing invitation, an invitation into God's kingdom. This is what we heard just a moment ago in the the reading in Matthew chapter 9. In verse 35, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness. This is like a summary of what Jesus went around doing. He was preaching and teaching and healing. He was proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. He was inviting people into God's kingdom. And this wasn't an invitation just for those who happened to be alive at that time. This was an invitation for all people in all places. This was an invitation for the whole world. And the question is, well, how would Jesus get the word out? To put it crassly, what would be his advertising strategy? And this is what we're going to be talking about today in Matthew chapter 9. Now, we're in a series at the moment, if you haven't been around, called Who is Jesus? We're kind of walking our way through Matthew's gospel in chapters 8 through to 12. And today we come to the mission of Jesus. What is Jesus' mission in the world? And what role do you and I play in this mission? Now, you might notice on the the screen or maybe in your series guide that the passage for today's sermon was Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, all the way through to the end of chapter 10, which is verse 42 of chapter 10. Now, as I began to prepare this week, I realized that Past Adam had bitten off more than he could chew. I'm not sure what exactly I was thinking when I was breaking this series up, but it was just too much. 
And so what we're going to do today is we're going to focus just on that passage at the end of chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Because this passage gives us a really wonderful summary of Jesus' mission in the world and the role that you and I play in it. Now this uh, is actually, this, this little passage is a pivotal passage in Matthew's gospel. It's a little bit like a hinge. You know what a hinge does? A hinge enables a door to swing open. Well, this passage kind of swings the door open from the mission of Jesus to the disciples' mission and to our mission. You see, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, if you've been following along, Jesus is the one that's been doing the work. Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing. But now, for the first time, here at the end of chapter 9, he recruits some workers. He gets some others involved in his mission. And then at the start of chapter 10, he actually sends the disciples out to be involved in his mission. Now, our passage that we're looking at today is obviously directly addressed to the disciples. You know, Jesus is speaking to them. He's talking to them about their involvement in his mission. And we need to understand the passage on that level first. But this doesn't mean that it has no relevance for us. Matthew hasn't recorded this simply so that we can look back at what the disciples did, at their involvement in Jesus' mission. Matthew's also recorded this so that we'll consider our involvement in Jesus' mission. And this is really what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to see that Jesus wants us to join him in his mission in the world. Now, at this point, I know what some of you are thinking. Great, a sermon on evangelism. Why didn't I stay in bed? I mean, if you've been a Christian for long enough, you know that Jesus has a mission in the world. You know that Jesus has a message for the world. And you know that Jesus has called you to play a role in that mission. You see, the challenge for us, I believe, as Christians, is not in the knowing. The challenge for us is in the doing. And so my goal for us today is pretty simple. I simply want to convince you of the urgency and the importance of Jesus' mission. I'm not going to be able to talk about everything. I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions about evangelism and mission. But I want you to feel the urgency. Because this is what I believe Jesus wants us to feel. You know, his mission in the world is... There's no words to adequately describe it. It's big, it's great, it's glorious. His message for the world, his invitation to the world is so compelling, so important, so urgent that we can't just kind of put it off, ignore it, or sit on the sidelines. And so I'm praying that God will so grip our hearts with the good news of his kingdom that you and I will be moved to make sacrifices, that we'll be moved to risk our reputation that we'll lose our fear of what other people think, that we might even give our lives for the sake of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, why is the mission of Jesus so important? Why is it so urgent? Why should we give ourselves to it? There are at least four reasons that I see in this passage. Number one is because the needs are real because the needs are real. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of crowds. 
Just ask my wife, Molly. It takes about, uh, when we go to the shops together, it takes about 30 seconds for me to start complaining about the crowds. Now, Jesus, of course, spent a lot of time among crowds. So far in Matthew's gospel, we've seen large crowds of people following Jesus. They've been listening to his teaching. They've been witnessing his miracles. They've been following him around the countryside. Now, the question is, what was Jesus' attitude towards the crowds? Did he grumble like me? Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, the word for compassion is a really strong word. It doesn't just mean that he felt sorry for them. It means that he was moved in his guts. We could literally say he was gutted. Now, what was it about the crowds that moved Jesus so deeply? Why did it stir up compassion inside of him? Well, look at, again, the rest of verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what does it mean to be a sheep without a shepherd? Because if we're honest, it sounds like a good thing, especially in our day and age. Sounds like freedom. No rules, no restrictions, no fences, no shepherd telling you where to go and what to do. Let me show you what a sheep without a shepherd looks like. This is Chris the sheep. Now, this is where he was found north of Canberra in 2015. Chris had been forgotten and left to roam freely. And as a result, he had the heaviest fleece ever recorded in the world. It was a Guinness book of record, a Guinness record, 41 kilograms. Now, after the RSPCA caught Chris and gave him a haircut, you might imagine that Chris lived happily ever after. But actually, Chris faced significant problems. He was weak, he was bow-legged, and he had lots of infections. And he ended up living for only a few years longer. Chris died much earlier than most other sheep. And this, I think, is a good picture of what it means to be a sheep without a shepherd. It means to be harassed and helpless. It means to be in danger and to be vulnerable. Now, you might be thinking, Jesus is being a little bit dramatic, isn't he? I mean, maybe the people in his day, maybe they were harassed and maybe they were poor and, and vulnerable. But today in our world, the situation is a, a lot different, isn't it? I mean, we've got electricity and we've got smartphones and we've got robot vacuums. You know, we live in one of the best countries in the world. We have the best coffee in the world. I mean, we, we have incredible freedom. Life is good, isn't it? That's true that we are wealthier, we're more comfortable than, than those in Jesus' day. But I think if you were to look under the surface of modern, middle-class, suburban Australia, I think the situation would not be as rosy as it seems. It was the comedian Louis C.K. who said, everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Or as Tim Keller writes in his book, Making Sense of God, he says, if we stand back to ask what we have learned about happiness over the centuries, it is striking to see our lack of progress. 
Think of how we have surpassed our ancestors in our ability to travel and communicate, in our accomplishments in medicine and science. Think of how much less brutal and unjust to minorities many societies are today compared with even 100 years ago. In so many ways, human life has been transformed. And yet, though we are unimaginably wealthier and more comfortable than our ancestors, no one is arguing that we are significantly happier than they were. We are seeking happiness in essentially the same ways our forebears did and doing a worse job of it if we use the rise of depression and suicide as an indicator. In other words, we are a lot like Chris the sheep. We're lost, we're alone, we're vulnerable. We're weighed down by sin, by suffering, by sickness, by shame. We're weighed down by disappointment, by dissatisfaction, by heartbreak, by grief. We're weighed down by life in a fallen world. And what do we need? According to Jesus, we need a shepherd. We need someone who can take care of us. We need someone who can provide for us. Not just physically and temporarily, but spiritually and eternally. And this is why Jesus has come. This is actually why Jesus uses this imagery of sheep and shepherds. Do you know, he's not kind of just pulling this out of thin air. It's not just kind of an object lesson. He's actually drawing on the Old Testament. See, there was a time in the history of God's people when the leaders of God's people were not doing their job. They'd abandoned the people. They were not taking care of the people. They were not providing for the people. And so God says, I will come for my people myself. It's an incredible promise in Ezekiel 34. Look at what God says. He says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. And Jesus, in using this imagery, is saying, that is who I am. I am the true shepherd. Or as he says in John's gospel, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd that we need. He has compassion on us. He feels for us. But he doesn't just feel for us. He dies for us. He lays down his life for lost and straying sheep like you and me. He is the good shepherd. And when we come to the good shepherd, when we receive his compassion, his love, his grace, we actually begin to show that compassion to others. It actually begins to change the way that we view the crowds around us. I mean, let me ask you, when you look at the crowds around you in your life, the people at the shops, the people you sit next to on the train, the people on your street, the people in your workplace, the people in your gym, the people at the football, the people who believe differently to you, the people who look different to you, the people who vote different to you, 
the people who talk differently to you? What do you see? Or maybe the better question is, what do you feel? Do you feel what Jesus feels? Do you feel compassion or contempt? Do do you feel anger or empathy? Do you feel care and concern or do you feel judgment and superiority? Do you feel what Jesus feels? Now, the reason this is so important is because if we are going to be engaged in Jesus' mission, we need to see others the way that Jesus sees them and we need to feel about others the way that Jesus feels about them. The reason that Jesus' mission is so urgent and so important is because the needs are real. The second reason that Jesus' mission is so urgent and so important is because the crowds are great. Jesus uh, shifts the imagery in verse 37. He moves from the flock to the field. He moves from uh, shepherding to harvesting. Look what he says, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Now, what do you think? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is this good news that the harvest is plentiful or is it bad news? Well, the answer is both. It's both encouraging and it's challenging. It's encouraging because there is opportunity all around us. Jesus is saying there are lots of people all around us and they have real needs and they need real hope. And we have the message that they need. And so we should expect lots of people will respond to Jesus. And did you know that we're in the privileged position that we can look back over the last 2,000 years and we can see that this has become reality. Lots and lots of people have come to Jesus. I mean, think about it. What began as a movement of a dozen people in Israel It's become a movement of billions of people all over the world. The harvest has indeed been plentiful. It's encouraging for us. But it's also challenging because the need remains great. The harvest is still plentiful. And if anything, it's getting more plentiful in Australia. There are still lots of people all around us that still have real needs and need real hope. You know, according to Google, the population of our world is approximately 8 billion people. Now, it's estimated that of those 8 billion people, there are approximately 2.4 billion Christians. Now, I would say that's a very generous estimate, but nonetheless, even if we assume they are all genuine Christians, it means there are still around 5.6 billion people in our world without Christ, without hope, and headed for eternity apart from God. Now, I know those numbers are huge, almost too big to to comprehend, so let me bring it a bit closer to home. The Moreton Bay region, the region in which we live and work and play, is home to approximately 500,000 people. According to the last census, about 46% of people in the Moreton Bay region identify as Christian. Now, again, I'd say that's probably a, a generous estimate, but even if we assume that's correct, it still means there are at least 270,000 people in our local community who are without Christ, without hope, and headed for eternity apart from God. Now, this is confronting, isn't it? It's challenging. But we can't just kind of ignore this. Can't put our heads in the sand. I think we need to feel the urgency of this. 
We need to feel the, the weight of this. There are people all around us every day, apart from God and without hope, eternally lost. There's an urgency here. Now, I know this is heavy, so let me give you some good news for a moment. I'm sure that you've noticed over the last year or so, uh, there have been some more people uh, around church. Uh, we, we've grown as a church community in the last 12 to 24 months. On the screen, you can see our average attendance for the last uh, five years, which includes all of our services and all of our kids. Now, average attendance grew 36% from 2022 to 2023 last year. You can also see in the last 12 months that our number of members grew by 11%, and our kids' ministries grew by over 50%. If you'd like to serve, you can serve in kids' ministry if you're able to. Now, we're so grateful to God for all of this growth. You know, it's a sign of health and life and vitality, and we give thanks to God for all of it. But here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to look around us on a Sunday at the, the pews, which are a bit fuller. We don't want to look at the line at the park after the service, which is a lot longer. And we don't want to grow complacent. We don't want to think that we can take it easy. We don't want to think we've arrived. We want to keep looking to the harvest. If I was to say it this way, I'd say, while our barn might be getting fuller, the harvest is still plentiful. And this is why our, our mission statement as a church is to help more people find life in Jesus. I remember when we launched this a few years ago, someone said to me, why include the word more? I mean, shouldn't it just be to help people find life in Jesus? But I think the word more is important because the word more keeps us looking out. The word more keeps us looking to those who aren't here yet. The word more keeps our eyes fixed on the harvest which is plentiful. And so the mission of Jesus is urgent and it's important because the needs are real, because the, 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 the crowds are great. And thirdly, the mission of Jesus is urgent and important because the workers are few. That's what Jesus goes on to say in verse 37. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now I wonder, what do you think is the greatest barrier to people becoming Christians? What stops people from becoming Christians? Why aren't there more Christians in Australia? Maybe you'd say, well, TV, Hollywood, social media, the sexual revolution, the woke progressives, the far-right fundamentalists. I mean, it's easy to look at external forces. And there's some validity to that. But according to Jesus here in Matthew 9, the dominant evangelistic blockage is a shortage of workers. Not just paid formal gospel workers, you know, like me and Ben and others, though we need more of them. And maybe some of you should consider formal gospel ministry. But I think Jesus is talking about just a lack of Christians willing to engage in God's mission. Now, at one level, this is totally understandable. After all, mission evangelism is not easy. It's one of the hardest things you can do. Now, I know this isn't true for all of us. There are some who have the gift of evangelism. It comes naturally, easily for them. We just kind of got to wind them up and let them go. But for the most of us, this isn't the case. 
Why is this evangelism so hard? Why is mission so difficult? Why are the workers so few? Why is it so daunting for us? There's lots of potential reasons, isn't there? Fear of saying the wrong thing. Fear of not knowing what to say. Fear of being rejected. Fear of ruining the relationship. Lots of different fears. But according to to Dave Jensen, Dave is an Aussie. He works for ENC, which stands for Evangelism and New Churches. It's an initiative of the Sydney Anglican Network. According to Dave Jensen, what holds us back from evangelism? It's the fear that sits underneath all the other fears. You know, we fear rejection, we fear ridicule, we fear embarrassment. Why? Because we fear people. We fear what others will think about us. We want them to like us. We want them to think that we're smart. We want them to think that we're successful. We fear embarrassment. We fear being humiliated. We care so deeply about what others think about us. Now, I don't know about you, but I know this is true in my life. And so what do we do about this? How do we kind of get past this? Well, firstly, I think we just should expect that being engaged in God's mission in the world is going to be difficult. Now, Jesus goes on to say to the the disciples in chapter 10, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And so the good shepherd will at times send you out into dangerous situations, sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogue. Jesus guarantees if you're going to be engaged in his mission, you will have experiences like him. You will be rejected. You you will be maybe even flogged, he says. If you share Jesus with others, it's not always going to go well for you. You won't always be liked. We should expect it to be difficult. But secondly, we should also remember the reality of eternity. Jesus says again later on in chapter 10, he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We need to feel the weight of eternity. Recently, I've been listening to this book. It's called Peace Child by Don Richardson. In 1962, Don and his wife Carol, along with their seven-month-old baby Stephen, they moved from Canada to serve as missionaries among the Sawi tribe in what is today the region known as Papua New Guinea. Now, not only were the Sawi tribe at that stage known to be violent and cannibalistic, but living in the jungle meant exposure to all kinds of diseases and infections, not only for them, but for their seven-month-old son, Stephen. Now, why would they do it? Well, the short answer is that Don and his wife, Carol, were convinced that life is short, that heaven and hell are real, and that Jesus is the only way. And it moved them to action. Now, what if we were to become convinced or or to become more convinced that life is short, that heaven and hell are real, and that Jesus is the only way? How would it change us? I think it would move us to fear people less, to love people more, 
to be willing to risk ridicule, rejection, embarrassment to tell more people about Jesus. I think there'd be more workers in the harvest. The mission of Jesus is urgent and it's important because the needs are real, because the crowds are great, because the workers are few. And fourthly and finally, and here's some good news. You ready? Because we're not alone. If the harvest is plentiful, if the workers are few, what should our response be? We don't have to wonder. Jesus tells us. Look at what he says, verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, can I be honest? This is not what I would expect. If the workers are few, if the harvest is plentiful, I would have thought Jesus would say, get going, get busy, get to work. But Jesus says we don't begin by talking to others. We actually begin by talking to God. We don't begin by by getting busy. We begin by getting on our knees in prayer before God. Why? Why would Jesus want us to start here? It's right there in verse 38. Because he's the Lord of the harvest. He's in charge. It's his field. It's his work. It's his harvest. This is so encouraging for us. This is such a relief. It doesn't ultimately depend on us. We're not the lords of the harvest. We're workers in the harvest, but we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest. We're to depend on him. We're to turn to him. We're to pray to him. Now, does this mean we only pray? Of course not. Jesus is just about to send out the disciples to do some work. But prayer is where the mission begins. Prayer is where the mission is sustained. This prayer for more workers. Now, let me just give you a warning. If you begin to pray this prayer, you should be very careful because you might discover that you are the answer to your own prayer. This is what happens for the disciples. Jesus tells them to pray and what happens in the very next verse? They're sent out on mission. Reminds me of a story I heard recently. There was this man, he was kind of talking about a church that was in this area called Carlingford in Sydney. He kind of went to school in Carlingford, so he knew the area well. And he's talking about this church. He's saying, what are they doing? I mean, it's a good church, but do they know what they're doing? There's Chinese people everywhere in Carlingford, and they're doing nothing to reach these Chinese people. He said a week later, he got a phone call from the senior pastor of that church. Would you like to join the team to reach out, to reach the Chinese people in our local community? And he couldn't say no. So you might find that you are the answer to your prayer. And that's where I want to land today. What about you? What role can you play? What next step do you need to take? Maybe you just need to start praying. Asking God to send out more workers into the harvest. Maybe you need to repent of your spiritual apathy of the way that you viewed the crowds. Maybe you need just to start to engage in Jesus' mission. Maybe you need to become a Christian. Be reconciled to God. Ask for God's forgiveness, which is freely given to you in Christ. I'm not sure what your next step is, but I know that we all have one. And we can all take it by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have 
brought us to yourself by your grace. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus from heaven to earth on the ultimate mission to die in our place for our sins so that we could become part of your family forever. And Lord, when you bring us near, you then send us out to be witnesses to Jesus, to be bearers of his good news. And Lord, we all can't do everything, but we can all do something. And you have placed us in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, on our streets, in, in wherever you have placed us, you've placed us there for your glory. And so help us, Lord, to love like you love. Help us to see what you see. Help us to share what you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I invite you to stand?